Stories Behind the White Coat. This is Grayscale. I'm Ben Davis. Welcome back. I'm trying. I really am. I'm trying to push these out. I have a bunch in backlog. It's been a little busy lately. But today, I got a treat for you. I have Chris Strum, family physician from Pennsylvania. This is our first remote episode. And he's also the host of the podcast, The Doc and the Deacon. So check that out. I have the link in the description box below. And as always, certain names and details are changed to protect the identities of our patients. Last thing, what would help us share these stories with more people is if you're on iTunes, give us a quick rating and review. Enjoy the story. In, um, it was the summer of, uh, 2015 and, uh, the United States Preventative Task Force had finally had a lung cancer screening, you know, uh, lung cancer screening had not really been a thing. It was now, you know, people between the ages of 55 and 80, if they had smoked for over 30 pack years, um, and if they were still smoking or if they had quit smoking within the last uh, 15 years, now had a test that um, obviously has a lot of uh, false positives, as uh, most of you uh, have realized uh, over the past few years. But there was now this screening, and I was, I was uh, nervous about the false positives, but excited about, you know, the, uh, the possibilities that maybe I could find lung cancer sooner Maybe these three millimeter nodules that we get reported on CAT scans would uh, maybe convince some more people to uh, stop smoking. Not that any by that has actually been, um, you know, proven with evidence based at this point, but um, I was pretty excited for it. And I, I think the task force came out right in the end of uh, 2013. So I had just ordered a few of these because there's questions, is this paid for? Which, you know, where I work, um, you know, not all my patients have a lot of money and, um, Co-pays are, are important, and I want to make sure that, you know, we're trying to use our resources in the best way possible. And I had this lady, and, uh, you know, she loved me. She also loved smoking, right? I mean, I couldn't tell what she loved more, but she definitely, you know, as her doctor, we had a, we had a, good, uh, we had a good relationship. And, you know, her worry was, you know, am I going to get lung cancer from smoking? And I was like, well, uh, we could check. So now I, uh, I'm excited and I'm like, we're going to put this uh, lung cancer screening to work. It's, it's someone who's interested. And so, you know, about a week later, I get a report that she had her low dose CT lung cancer screening. Uh, you know, as a doctor, when you come in in the morning and you click on your box in the electronic health records, all of a sudden you see how many messages, how many labs, and, um, you know, sometimes it's overwhelming, but at this point I saw her name and it was literally the first thing I clicked on that morning. And my day wasn't quite the same at that point because it, it showed a mass in her lungs and not like a, you know, an eight millimeter nodule or a 10 millimeter nodule, she had a 5.1 by a 4.9 centimeter mass in her left lower lobe. And, um, uh, and so I called her and, and, and had this discussion, and obviously she, she was upset, and it did look like there may have been uh, meds to other areas. We get a PET scan. I get a brain MRI. I have her see an oncologist. I have her see another oncologist. I had her see a radiation oncologist. 
And at, at this point, um, basically, her survival was not good. And, and she didn't know these people. So hearing a person who was asymptomatic had a six-month average life expectancy at this point, she just, she didn't believe them. She had anger towards them. But, as I said earlier, she still loved me. So she, she, comes, in to, she comes in to see me, and, and we have this discussion of, you know, th there's no surgical uh, options that were available for her at this point. And it was, um, should I do chemotherapy? Should I do radiation? I feel fine. Those oncologists are stupid. She actually said that a few times. And, you know, we, we always have this term, uh, you know, people fought hard with cancer. Uh, we, we went to battle fighting with cancer. And, and as, as a doctor who treats it and has never had it, uh, I really don't know how I would respond, you know. I think all, a lot of us physicians out there, you know, would be DNR at some point, would be organ donors. I, I don't know why I think that, but it sure seems like most of us wouldn't go through some of these things at the end of life because we've seen others go through it and, and maybe it not help. Maybe I'm not right, but it, it made it beautiful to me when she said, you know, I'm not going to take drugs that make me feel sick. I'm going to live my life. And I made a bucket list. I was like, you made a bucket list. I was like, I, I can't wait to hear this bucket list. And so uh, the first thing on her bucket list, it was, I'm going to drink a martini once a week. And I was like, I, I'm okay with that at this point, right? You know, I mean, that's, that's not too much. A martini once a week is okay. You know, I, I enjoy, you know, this cold beer. Next was, I'm going to go down to Graceland to see Elvis's home. And, you know, I, and then I asked her, you know, was she going to visit the fat Elvis or the young hip Elvis? And um, she, went, she went to Graceland. And, and last but not least, she goes, uh, I want to go ziplining. And I was like, ziplining? I, uh, I think that's an awesome idea. You should. Um, and I'll point out she was 72. Um, and then she goes, but I want you to come with me. And, you know, I, I sit there for a second and, you know, there's a, there's a balance between you want to get involved in your patients' lives. And, uh, but I was like, hell yeah, let's go ziplining. So, uh, you know, there's a local zoo near where we are. And um, as one of the local doctors, they know her, they know me. And there's going to be a big party at the zoo. It's going to be a celebration of life. And um, I show up, I'm excited, and we get ready to zip line. And, you know, her husband's there. I actually also take care of her husband. Um, and her son had actually just passed away in the past year. Um, uh, sadly enough, from the opioid epidemic. And so, um, but she is bubbling with energy. And she had friends and family. And uh, she actually had her priest. So before we go zip lining, her priest gives a prayer. I get set up to get up there to go zip lighting, and she pushes her husband up ahead. He has to go without her because she's going to zip line with Dr. Drum. And so we went zip lining. It was amazing, right? I, I could see the smiles on her face. I could see how everyone was just so excited that we were getting to have this experience together with a person who, at this point, still felt pretty good. And as a doctor at this point, you know, this is one of the times where someone is, has a time in their life where 
They may not live forever, but I got to experience something beautiful with them. At the end of this, I start talking with her husband. And, you know, you can tell how much he loved her and how long he'd been with her. And they had been together since they were teens. And, and he was complaining to me that, like, she's going out with the girls and, you know, I want her to be home and, and resting with me, which is, you know, I think very cute for a 70 year old couple when one of them has, you know, stage four lung cancer. But then at this point, he, uh, he looks at me and he goes, you know, uh, I, uh, I can't go on without her. And I was like, well, um, you'll be okay. It, it, it will be difficult. And, you know, it, it's tough because I'm 40, right? My, my wife's alive. My, my children alive. I, I really don't know how I'd feel. But at this point, I, I, I tell him, you're going to be okay. You know, we're going to take good care of your wife. So the night ends, and I really didn't think about that conversation for a while. At this point now, we're eight months out, and she comes in and she goes, I told you, those oncologists have, have no idea what they're talking about. I told you they were idiots. And I mean, me knowing the reality is that these calculations, whenever people give these, they're really hard estimates to make, right? You know, whenever someone goes, I always wonder, you know, I'm not an oncologist. I'm a family doc and I love being a family physician, but like, where do they come up with these numbers sometimes, you know? About two weeks later, she comes in to see me and, you know, she always brings me in like a muffin or a snack, which I do accept, but I won't take any money for lunch. I will point that out. And uh, she, she had slurred speech. And she couldn't quite get her words out. And she goes, Doc, what do you think is going on? And I was like, well, I, I, I think that the cancer has gone to your brain. She's like, I don't know. I don't buy it. And so, you know, at this point, she did not want a ton of intervention. But I, I did get a CAT scan of her brain. And it did show um, that the uh, cancer had spread there. You know, I started her on some dexamethasone. I put her on some steroids. It, it got a little bit better. But uh, within three weeks later, she was real sick and she had really you know, fought off being hospice and I had treated her anxiety and, and treated her pain and I'd, I'd been basically seeing her once a month and um, doing palliative care without the official title or putting her on it but it, at this point she couldn't get out of bed she was having trouble breathing and so I finally uh, convinced her hey it's time um, you need more help that uh, I, as an outpatient uh, family doc, can give you. And I um, had hospice come in, and uh, you know, within about uh, seven, eight days after they came in, uh, she finally passed. It wasn't sad though. You know, it's one of those uh, we shouldn't feel different when when people die at different ages, but we do. And at this point, there wasn't a, a sense of sadness, and I was. I was actually excited to try to at least make the viewing or go to the funeral because she had taken a, a different look at, at, at dying than, than most of the times I had seen people who were oftentimes sick with nausea and vomiting from the meds we were giving, let, let, let alone the tumors that was, you know, growing inside of, uh, of, of patients at times. I called and I, uh, and I spoke to her husband and he was distraught, which, which I, sh I sure expected. And I talked to her niece and nephew, who, uh, I mean, I knew them all at this point because I'd been ziplining with them. And, you know, when I was talking to him, uh, he gave me a bad vibe. 
he was like, I, I can't, I can't doc. And I was like, Oh, 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 uh, um, yes, you can. Uh, you know, I did one of those, Hey, please promise me you won't, you won't do anything to, to hurt yourself. You know, I, I, I can't imagine how you feel right now, but I, I, I don't think you, your, your wife would want you to do something to hurt yourself. You know, and then I'm like, uh, you know, I usually in real life ask people to give me a pinky swear. Um, not that that's been shown to work, but I, I, I did make him, you know, this promise for safety that I, I think we all do. Um, then I was like, hey, do you mind if I, I talk to your niece or nephew? I spoke to them. I told them how much I appreciated the time I had with uh, uh, their aunt, how she inspired me, um, how blessed I felt to be part of her, you know, bucket list. And then I told them, keep an eye on your uncle. And I went home and I, you know, talked to my wife about, you know, what had gone on so far and how I was feeling. And I had talked to my office manager about possibly blocking out my schedule to go to, um, to go to part of the funeral, release the viewing. And I get into work that day and I, uh, I got the call that I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by, uh, but I was. And her, uh, her husband had taken her his life that night. He convinced his niece and his nephew, Hey, you can, uh, you can go home. I'm fine. He went out to the garage. He um, turned on the car, shut the garage door. And um, he decided that uh, he needed to be with her and uh, he couldn't wait any longer. So it's one of those where um, I don't know if it's right, but I was uh, I was angry. I was angry at him. And I was angry that her, what I felt like beautiful plan for her end had been, I'm going to use the word tainted with suicide, but I, I just don't know a better way to phrase it. I don't know, was I, was I angry at him or was I angry that I failed? Did I fail him? You know, um, we talk about suicide prevention so much. And I had talked to someone the day before who wasn't telling me. I mean, he told me he wasn't going to do it, but he, he sure was saying scary words. And I don't know if I was more angry at him or angry at myself. And it took me a while to really get a, a sense of, you know, how important my thoughts are towards this. Of course they are towards being a physician. Um, but in this case for him and his life and his story, was this the right ending for him? Is this how he wanted his life? Right? In my brain, suicide is bad. Suicide is wrong. And I think my, the question I've been struggling with kind of ever since, and I don't know why, uh, hearing Grayscale made me think this could help me better wrap my mind around, you know, my attempts at doing the right thing. And in the end, <laughs> feeling this, this, this anger in him and this failure, as opposed to the sadness for him who lost his wife.
one of the questions that we normally ask on this podcast for physicians is whether or not the experience that they went through changes how they practice medicine moving into the future. Since this time, have you had any patients with suicidal ideation or with plans? And has your experience changed how you approach them? Um, you know, the process of this for me has shown me that when you have a gut sensation that something is bad here, you need to go over and above. And so I, I honestly thought that I always was someone who would, you know, would call and make sure that we either 302 or convince someone to go into the hospital on their own. Um, but it has definitely affected me. I think even more with how I deal with loved ones who has someone who's dying and getting further out ahead of it in describing their feelings and seeing how they at least are telling me they're going to react when we know the end is near. With, with him, he continued to give me these slight little comments that I guess I just didn't think it would happen. I just didn't think he would do it. And so for now, I, I think because most times when somebody comes in and, and I don't know that it's been changed, but um, um, I, I definitely missed this one. And I also think that um, it definitely has made me focus on the loved one a little bit more to make sure that I have a better sense of where they are at before something happens. So for myself, practicing in downtown Seattle, I'm not necessarily going to see all of my patients at the grocery store or when I'm out at dinner. And uh, especially because a lot of our patients come from south of Seattle. Do you ever get the feeling that you're having patients rely on you even more because you are seeing them more frequently outside of the clinic walls? Yeah, so we're in a relatively urban suburb, but the practice has been around since uh, 1941 because the doctor who founded it had a club foot and couldn't get sent over to, for the war. And I do live in a place where if I go to the bakery, they give me free food i um if i'm out at dinner i can tell the patients next to me are ordering salads as opposed to a cheesesteak here in philadelphia because they're worried i'm i'm i'm, I'm looking <laughs> and you know f feel free to shout out any of these restaurants if you want to continue getting free food <laughs> <laughs> and you know it is one of those where i realize when i am just walking around and being myself that oftentimes someone realizes that hey this is a family doctor here and I, um, um, it's important to me to be a part of it. And I've, uh, I actually love it a little bit, even though there is, a, there's a place, uh, there's a place, uh, and obviously I, I live near Philadelphia. So we have this breakfast sandwich. It's basically a cheesesteak breakfast sandwich. So it's just basically eggs on a cheesesteak. And, uh, rarely on a Saturday morning when I go into work, I get something terrible to eat. And the other day I stop in, uh, on my way and, ordered the sandwich and as i get ready to leave they go uh, uh dr drum you know that breakfast is very bad for you <laughs> that's why i purposefully selected to to practice in a major metropolitan area so i could 
easily sneak away food at Taco Bell without being judged. Yes. <laughs> what what advice would you give young Chris, um, knowing what you know now and experience what you've experienced for the past several years? What would what would you tell him back in the day? Um. Well, first, um, you should have drank less beer the first year in medical school. <laughs> Because step one, <laughs> and, and, and how well you do on step one has nothing to do with how good of a physician you are. And um, the other thing um, I would uh, tell young Chris is um, be comfortable saying, I don't know. Be comfortable learning things that you weren't comfortable with before. And really... We all have our, 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 our thoughts and dreams and trying to get a sense of what other people's wants and cares and desires out of what they want in life are what is important to them and not what I have in my idea as what a quality, you know, life is. You know, we see patients and we go, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. And some of them, that's not necessarily what's important to them, you know? And I, I think for step one is when you're taking some care of someone, trying to get a sense of, of, of their values, which I think I've sure improved at, but um, and in trying to help them make them be their best, healthiest person as opposed to, you know, <laughs> what I think would be the case. Speaking to the quality of life, the quality of life for your patient's husband. What did you think that was before and after his wife died? I think that he, at this point, his individual self had morphed into what he was as part of this marriage. And his life had turned into their road together. And um, I am married and my wife has a different uh, job and we obviously have, have a, um, a family. But, uh, but I think that his life at this point, they had been retired and it was, you know, his life was their life together. And I was looking at it as, you know, it, it, is, it is obviously very sad that his wife's uh, time here had ended and that his would have to adjust and by her life ending his which was combined with her life and her experiences also ended at the same time and that living a life without what he had had for the last 50 some years was not something that he felt like he needed or wanted Grayscale is produced by Ben Davis. Thank you again to Chris for joining me on the podcast and sharing his story. And a quick reminder of his own podcast, Doc and the Deacon. It's in the description box below. Be sure to check it out. If you'd like to share your own story, just like Chris, feel free to contact me at thebadhumors.com. Just click on the contact box. And as always, a big thank you to our patients continue to enrich our lives through shared experiences. Mm-hmm.